If you will, open your Bibles to John 4. Most of this chapter in John's Gospel centers around an appointment one woman had with Jesus. Now, the story is pretty familiar to most of us, but don't let that keep you from meeting with Jesus today. Pull up a stone. Take a seat by the well. Let's enter into this story today as if we're sitting right there. John 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he, being Jesus, left Judea and went away and again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sakar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's look at this scene. John 4 begins by telling us that Jesus had decided it was time to conclude his disciples' baptizing ministry in Judea and head north into Galilee. Verse 4 tells us that he had to go by way of Samaria. Now let me give you just a little bit of context here. The Samaritans were a small, hated community of people that lived in Israel. The animosity went back almost a thousand years to the time when the, nor the ten northern tribes seceded from the southern kingdom and they were then unfaithful to God. So in 1722 BC, God punished the northern kingdom by allowing the Assyrians to come in and conquer them. Now, in those days, when a country came in and conquered a people, the first thing they would do is to take away most of the people into exile and make them slaves or concubines. And then they would send a bunch of their own people into that country to mix with the remnant that was left there. The northern kingdom of Israel embraced the integration with the Assyrians, marrying them and assimilating their culture and their worship into their Judaism. And as a result, they came known as Samaritans. Basically, the Samaritans became like a religious cult. They used some of the Old Testament books, like the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but they omitted several others that they thought were too pro-Jewish, like the Psalms. So basically, becoming a cult, needing a place to worship, they built their own temple. Now, the southern kingdom of Israel, which thought of themselves as the only real Israel, viewed the Samaritans as compromisers and as half-breeds. Because the Jews despised the Samaritans so deeply, 
if you were trying to get to the northern part of Israel, rather than going through Samaria, you had to walk around it, even though it would add about six days to the journey. Yet Jesus says, I have to go this way. Why? Why does he grow, go straight north rather than taking the traditional Jewish bypass? Are his disciples ready for this? He's going to take them right into the cultural awkwardness of the day without any preparation, without any advance notice. He just heads north. Why? Because he has an appointment. With who? With a woman. Why? Because he is the savior of the world. So they arrive at Jacob's well near Sakar around noon. Now you don't usually think of Jesus as getting tired. But in his humanity, he did. The crowds were always pressing in on him. His disciples were asking question after question after question. He had very little time to himself. So Jesus sent the disciples off into town to get some groceries, and he sat down by the well to get some rest and to await the arrival of his appointment. Perhaps his eyes are even closed when he hears the approaching footsteps. Verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty nor come all the way to this well to draw water. He said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. 
You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I, who speak to you, am he. When Jesus speaks to this woman, he is crossing huge cultural barriers. First, he spoke to a Samaritan. The Jews and the Samaritans absolutely hated each other. In fact, a popular Jewish prayer of the times was, and Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. In other words, Lord, don't let the Samaritans into heaven. We cannot do <laughs> No Samaritans here. Not only did Jesus cross the barrier of race, he also crossed the barrier of gender. Rabbis were forbidden to speak to women in public. There were even Pharisees who were called the, bru the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because when they saw a woman in public, they would cover their eyes and end up bumping into walls and houses. You, this is true. You can't make some of this up. That's how much. Those are the barriers that Jesus crossed in order to speak to this woman. But he not only spoke to her, he stepped right over every conventional barrier and asked her for a drink of water. Now let's look closely at this woman. To her, a man had always been the primary way to have the things that she thought would quench her thirsty soul. Intimacy was important to her, but security, that was even higher on the list. And a desire to feel significant had gnawed at her for longer than she could ever remember. So she got married. Five times. Now, we don't know if these marriages ended in divorce or death or a combination of the two. But what we do know is this. The disappointments in those relationships had just built up around her heart. They were like bricks. Her heart had grown numb in an effort to just survive. Now, she hadn't given up on men, at least not yet. But her multiple failed marriages made her settle on just living with this current guy. So what if her friends and family didn't approve? She had too little hope, too little resolve left in her to even care. Now, for her, this morning had begun like most others. Doing chores while the dull ache of her longings throbbed beneath the surface. As usual, she waited to midday to go and draw water. Sure, it was hotter then, but at least she would avoid the contempt of the women who thought that they were so much better than she was. And as she approached the well, she realized she wasn't going to be alone. There was someone else there. And as she got closer, she realized 
It was a man and a Jew. Taking a deep breath to steal her heart against the ridicule she was certain she was going to receive, she approached the well. And when he spoke to her, asking her for a drink of water, she was shocked. In her response, you can hear her disbelief. You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How is it that you can ask me for a drink? Now, as their conversation begins, Jesus probes to see if she's willing to admit her own thirst and take a drink of life. He goes straight for her heart. Verse 14. There's water you can have that wells up into eternal life. There is water to be had that will satisfy you. Water that will take the brokenness of your heart and make it whole. Standing right there beside Jacob's well, Jesus is helping this woman realize that men, sex, companionship, they're all just natural wells of life. And those who drink from them will thirst again. The natural waters of our life will never satisfy our souls, ladies. Going to those things or just like being a shipwrecked sailor and drinking the salty ocean water, mistakenly believing that it's going to quench your thirst and then finding out that you're only more wretchedly thirsty than you ever could have imagined you would be. Look at the end, though, of verse 14. This is a beautiful picture. What direction does Jesus say this living water goes? It goes up. It is a vertical water that springs up and keeps going eternally. It's an incredible picture. Listen to Revelation 7, 17. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Ladies, when we receive Christ, he quenches the thirst of our parched souls. And that living water, that eternal water, begins to go up. And it goes up and up and up like a beautiful dancing fountain right on into eternity. This is the living water that Jesus is talking with this woman about. And she wants it. You remember her response? Sir, Tell me where this water is so I can keep quit coming to this well. And Jesus, because he loves her so much, goes straight to the natural well that's in her life. Woman, go get your husband and we'll talk about it. Well, I don't have a husband. Yeah, I know, you've had five. And the guy you're with now is not your husband. Now, why does Jesus do this? Because to expose her deepest hurt is to reveal to her that she needs a savior. All the shame she's hidden, all the kind of avoidance that she has walked in, Jesus has just brought into light. And what does she do in that moment? She tries to change the subject. She doesn't want to go five marriages down to what's wrong inside of her, so she decides to bring up a theological issue. She wants to argue about where to worship. You can see in her both theological confusion 
and a reluctance to surrender her heart. She says, well, you Jews say it's on this mountain, but we say it's on this mountain. And Jesus stops her. He is not going to let her theological confusion or her attempt to shelter her heart stop him. He says, it's not about mountains at all. It's not about places. He deconstructs her temple mindset. You see, the temple mindset is this. Where can I go to atone for what I've done? Where can I go and make sacrifice? This is a woman who lives under a shroud of deep personal shame. So she asks, where do I go? Where do I go to make myself right? And Jesus' response is, I have come to make you right. You don't go to a place to be made right. I am coming to make you right. Now let's pause here in the conversation Jesus is having with the woman and look at the lesson that he's teaching about true worship. Verses 23 and 24. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. What does it mean to worship in truth? This woman lived in a culture that had a wrong view of God. The Samaritans worshiped all right, but their worship was only impartial truth. Worshiping in truth occurs when our worship is in alignment with who God says he is. Who God says he is. Wrong thinking about God is idolatry because an idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than who he says he is. On your handout, there's a quote there by Tozier that says this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our worship, ladies, must include the total revelation of who God says he is. And when this happens, God is worshiped in truth. Idolatrous hearts are purged. Moral lives are elevated. God is worshiped in the awe and reverence of which he is worthy. And most importantly, he is pleased. We're to worship in truth. And also we're to worship in spirit. Jesus is talking about worshiping in the depth of our inner being. Authentic worship happens only when the very core of our being is engaged in the worship of God. Join me in another, another scene for just a minute. Acts 16. Picture Paul and Silas in a prison cell in Philippi. They're beaten. They're bound in chains. It's around midnight. They can't get comfortable. They can't sleep. Silas looks over at Paul and says, Paul, I just don't think I can take it much longer. Paul looks back at Silas and says, Silas, I don't think I can take it another minute either. Smiles begin to spread across their faces and together they cry out, we've just got to sing. Ladies, that is worshiping in our spirits. 
in the midst of their difficulties, in the midst of a horrible circumstance, what happened in their hearts and in their souls. There was such worship that it just bubbled into life. That's what happens when we worship in our spirit. The third lesson Jesus teaches about worship is that God is looking for worshipers. The central reality in worship is not that we're seeking God, but that he is seeking us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God will rejoice over you in singing. He is seeking you to be his worshiper. Now back to our text and the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. I love verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In other words, she says, when the Messiah gets here, he'll straighten all this out. Jesus says, I am straightening this out. What a moment. What a moment. This is who Jesus reveals that he is the Son of God to. This is the first person that he reveals that he is the Messiah to. A woman with a shady past. A woman who has been drowning in her pain and her shame. And Jesus comes to her and he says, I am straightening all of this out. That is grace. That is love. Ladies, this is our Jesus. So let's look at the aftermath. What happens after the appointment? Verse 27. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said to her, what do you seek? Or to him, why do you speak to her? So the woman left her water pot and went to the city and said to the, man, the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Here's what happens next. Jesus is deep in his conversation with this woman, trying to help her see that he's after her heart and freedom for her heart. And the 12 disciples roll up with bags of groceries. As they survey the scene, surely they had to wonder what was going on here, but they say nothing. And the woman, well, she heads back to town. Interesting detail, she leaves her water pot behind. She had come for physical water, two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. But when she met the living water, when she met the living water, he washed her in his blood. He drenched her with love. And she had to run back to town to tell anyone and everyone who would listen to what had happened to her. And as she does, as she does, she leads with her wound. Come see the man who told me all the things that I've done. Now just a few minutes before, her shame had been so heavy that she didn't want to come in contact with anyone. But when Jesus heals her wound, when Jesus heals her wound, 
that healed wound becomes her gospel testimony. And as the people hear her testimony, they drop everything that they're doing and they head to the well to see this man for himself, themselves. Verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him any food to eat, did they? Can't you just see their confused looks on their faces? Did you give him something? Did you slip him a sandwich? Did somebody give him some peanut butter and crackers? Verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What Jesus is telling them is this, what gives me energy, what motivates me is to do my father's work. Verse 35, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. As Jesus is talking with the disciples, I can almost see him turning towards the car and looking and seeing that stream of Samaritans that are heading for him. Verse 39, from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them, and they stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Through the testimony of one unnamed woman with her heartbreaking background and her theological confusion, through this woman who for most of her life has been the one pointed to as what not to become, salvation comes to Samaria. And as a result, the Samaritans are the first to call Jesus the Savior of the world. Now, after two days in Samaria, Jesus and the disciples head north into Galilee, where Jesus has a second appointment and performs a second sign. Therefore, he came again to Cana of Galilee, where he'd made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, his son, for he was at the point of death. This dad, a nobleman, perhaps an official in Herod's court, comes all the way from Capernaum to Cana. That is a 20-mile walk uphill. He comes to ask Jesus to heal his son. Death is knocking at the door of his house. And this man with money and power and title all of a sudden feels a universal human experience, powerlessness. In desperation, he comes in search of the one who turned water into wine. I really like this nobleman. He doesn't send a servant. Certainly he could have. But his son is so dear to him. His son is so precious to him that he cannot entrust this duty to anyone except for himself. And he is not beyond begging for his son's life. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, 
Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Instead of responding just directly to the man, Jesus speaks to the entire crowd that's gathered there. You people are just miracle seekers. Sensation mongers, you won't believe. Now don't misunderstand. Jesus is not being insensitive to this man's need. In fact, he's going to the deepest need the man has, his need for Jesus. But for this official, for this nobleman, Jesus is his last hope for his boy. And he cries out in mercy, Sir, sir, come down now before my boy dies. And you can just imagine the silence that was there as this man is face to face with Jesus begging for his son's life. Verse 50, and then Jesus speaks and says, Go, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. For this man, believing was seeing. Even though he was 20 miles from home, he saw his son as healthy and well. That, ladies, is believing, saving faith. His faith is so strong, in fact, that he doesn't even immediately go back home. He stays in Cana a little bit longer. And the next day, verse 51, as he was going down now, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. Then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour when the, was when the fever left him. So the father checks his son down and he says, yep, that's what I thought. It was, at, it was at that hour in which Jesus said, your son lived. Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Ladies, today we've looked closely at two women, or two people rather. We've looked at a man and a woman, both who have vastly different backgrounds. A woman, a member of a scorned race who was stuck in her sin and rotting in shame. A man who had power, money, and all the things money can buy. Without Jesus, both were empty and desperate. But when they met the Savior, both were healed. They were drenched in his love. And because of their testimonies, because of their testimonies, many others believed. May I ask you a question this morning? Who's believing because of your testimony? Who's believing because of your testimony? Is the presence of Jesus, the power of Jesus, the love of Jesus in your life drawing others to him? If not, why? Paul writes in Philippians 1.6, Who who began a good work in you will perfect it, will complete it. 
if you've met the Savior, if you have been washed by his blood, if you've been drenched by his love, he wants to finish the work. No more guilt. No more shame. Jesus wants to take that place. He wants to take that place where you're wounded. He wants to take that place of pain and shame. He wants to take that place that the enemy meant to destroy you, that the enemy meant to take you down. He wants to take that place and heal you today. He wants to heal you so that you can walk in freedom, walk in love, walk in joy, so that you can have victory today. And if someone here today has never met Christ, just like the woman at the well, just like the nobleman, Jesus wants you to have a gospel testimony. Asking Jesus to come into your heart, it's just as easy as three little words. I've shared them with you before. Sorry, please, thank you. Jesus, I'm sorry for my sin. I've fallen short. Please, please forgive me, Jesus. His word says that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then thank you. Thank you for what you've accomplished on the cross for me.